This is the um, panel session on um, ontology of ontologies in advance of the um, NCOR NIST Ontolog Forum Ontology Summit, which will take place in Gaithersburg, Maryland, on the 28th and the 29th of April. And we will be providing instructions about registering at the end of the meeting, but you should be aware that there is a deadline for hotel accommodations and registering for the meeting. Uh, the first speaker and also my co-chair is Michael Gruninger from the University of Toronto, a leader in the field of process ontologies and the project leader for the process specification language project at NIST. And he will introduce the, uh, the panel session and provide some slides to uh, set the scene. Thank you, Barry. Uh, so, yes, I'll uh, just be giving a few slides just to uh, set the context, uh, put the frame in, and I'll let the remaining panelists uh, color in accordingly. Um, I have to, I'm not sure who actually coined the phrase ontology of ontologies within our group. I have to admit a little bit of, of uh, uneasiness with it sometimes uh, because it's, it sounds very ambitious and, and grandiose. Um, but I think if we look in terms of, of where this was coming from. This, the, the, I think the phrase ontology of ontologies arose out of some of the discussions from last year's summit, which I will be presenting in a little bit uh, in more detail shortly. Um, but if we think of that idea of coming up with identifying the various properties of ontologies, of, of the different artifacts that people call ontologies, the different properties they have, the uh, relationships between them, uh, and which would go into a repository eventually, then what we're really after is on slide two, uh, our challenge is to identify um, the metadata for ontologies that we would use to describe the um, ontologies within the uh, repository, and in particular uh, with the goal of what kinds of metadata share, uh, enable us to share and reuse um, the ontologies. So if we go to slide three, um, what are some of the kinds of uses that we want to uh, support with the repository? Um, you know, we want to be able to retrieve ontologies for various kinds of domain applications uh, so that uh, I can go to the repository, say I need to have a good biology ontology and I need some kind of, of uh, chemical ontology in order to, to investigate uh, drugs. Um, or I may want to uh, build a new ontology of my own, but uh, reuse ontologies that other people have done. So again, I want to retrieve ontologies that will be integrated um, with, with mine. Uh, I may want to create whole new ontologies, and again, to find, I want to be able to find uh, which ones are the most relevant. I might want to be able to determine uh, whether or not some other some ontology can actually be integrated um, with mine, or whether I need to, perf to make any kinds of modifications to it. Um, there may be other kinds of relationships between ontologies. Uh, one ontology I'm going to be using may depend on a use a time ontology. And so in addition to retrieving that particular uh, biochemical process ontology, I would also need to retrieve a time ontology because it's being used by it. And so we need to know what those kinds of relationships are. Um, and there may be cases where I, I can't use all of an ontology, uh, but only part of it. And I want to identify, well, what aspects can be partially shared? And there may be, there will be other kinds of challenges, uh, and with respect to, uh, ontology languages and things like that. And that will be the focus, uh, for, uh, today's panel discussion. On slide four, 
in an earlier note uh, to the uh, the mailing list, uh, I just kind of made a little straw man proposal uh, for different kinds of metadata that we would like to um, propose. Um, the first kind of fell into the general category of logical metadata, where we were looking at, at logical properties of the ontology independently of any uh, particular uh, implementation um, or engineering artifacts. So things like what languages the ontology represented in and, and properties of those languages, uh, the kind of the modularity of the uh, ontology, whether um, it is one giant set of, of expressions or axioms in some language or whether it's uh, there are broken up into smaller components that are related in a certain way, which leads to the, the other aspect, which is what are the different kinds of, of logical relationships between ontologies for, you know, related to uh, whether two ontologies are mutually consistent or whether one's uh, logically stronger than another one and things like that. The other category of, of metadata approaches uh, was more oriented towards considering the ontology um, as an engineering artifact. Uh, so uh, aspects of versioning um, and all the other kinds of management uh, issues like that. And so fortunately today we have uh, a number of, uh, of people who will be uh, focusing in on, on that engineering metadata aspect. Um, slide five, um, I just want to express a, a wish just before we uh, get to the list of panelists. Um, it would be great if we uh, could, uh, even before the summit uh, at the end of this month um, uh, begins to whatever kinds of proposals we have. And I think we're fortunate uh, in this in today's session that we have a number of very uh, uh, polished kinds of approaches uh, that are actually out there uh, working that we might be able to reuse uh, almost immediately. Um, and I think the idea can be that if we can start collecting ontologies, whatever people call we're calling ontologies, um, from various summit participants, uh, that we can begin collecting this perhaps on the wiki uh, with pointers to the, to the ontologies and actually exploring uh, the applicability of the various ontology metadata proposals um, on these ontologies that people are actually using. Um, and in this way, uh, you kind of evaluate um, the adequacy, the strengths, and the weaknesses for all the different approaches that we're, we're considering. Um, along these, uh, on a parallel line, I think if we um, also started developing some scenarios, um, I, I kind of outlined a few uses that metadata should allow users to to, uh, to use. Um, but if we kind of develop some of these use case scenarios uh, for metadata in the uh, repository with the particular ontologies that people are are kind of posting on the wiki, uh, again, I think that this can keep us grounded, and I think this can actually help. Um, uh, help us achieve some very concrete kinds of results. And I think the other, coming back to the title of our, of our session today, uh, I think the idea is if we can maybe uh, develop this ontology of ontologies from a bottom-up way by identifying the metadata um, that is useful for uh, identifying the commonalities between different ontologies as well as articulating the differences between different ontologies, I think we'll have a very successful summit. Uh, so uh, slide six, the final um, slide here, uh, overview of our panelists. Um, starting up is some guy from the University of uh, Toronto, I think it is. Um, he will be presenting a, a framework uh, for an ontology of ontologies resulting, uh, that was uh, the outcome of the uh, 2007 Ontology Summit. 
Uh, our second uh, speaker will be uh, Peter Haas from the University of Karlsruhe, who will be presenting the OMV, uh, Ontology Metadata Vocabulary. Again, a very uh, interesting and exciting kind of approach here that, it, that might fulfill many of our, our uh, requirements. Uh, third will be Natasha Noy uh, from the Stanford Center for Biomedical Informatics. Um, she'll be presenting uh, some work on the ontology metadata that's used in the uh, NCBO uh, BioPortal. And then uh, finally, we'll have Elisa Kendall from Sandpiper Software, um, who will be presenting some aspects coming out of the OMG efforts um, dealing with metadata support and uh, vocabulary management. Uh, so, Barry, if you had any, did you have any other comments uh, before we move into the uh, panels? I don't have any more comments, no. Uh, okay, so um, I guess we can start um, with with the panelists. I th what we'll do is, uh, I think, Peter, I think we'll, we're going to have each of the panelists pr uh, present their their work, uh, and then um, at the end of all the panelists' presentations, then we'll be opening up for questions. Is that correct? I think. It's yes. Right. Yes. We'll hold up until all speakers have presented. Uh, and, yeah, so then each of the speakers will be uh, presenting for uh, approximately 20 minutes, yep. and then that will leave us a lot of time for discussion at the end. Uh, I believe we have a hard stop of uh, 4 o'clock uh, p.m. Eastern time um, today. It's now 1.55 uh, Eastern time. Um, so, uh, okay, I guess if, if All right. no other... So if people can bring up the uh, slide deck that's uh, linked as one, and that should be it. We're on slide one now. Michael. Okay. Uh, yeah, so I'll just um, be presenting uh, a summary um, of the results from uh, Ontology Summit 2007. Uh, if we could just move to slide two. Uh, so this was the, the uh, Ontology Summit last year was entitled uh, Ontology, Taxonomy, Folksonomy, um, Understanding the Distinctions. Um, as this year, it began as a, a virtual ontologue forum um, starting in January of 07 and then culminated in a, a two-day workshop at NIST uh, at the end of April. And I just want to uh, emphasize that what I'm presenting, uh, I'm, I'm, I merely collected and uh, organized some of the many notes that were produced by uh, uh, many people within the community, um, not only the participants at the, physically at the Ontology Summit, but everyone um, on the Ontolog Forum. And if you refer to the details at the URL at the bottom of this slide, uh, you can see the original communique uh, and get um, access to many of the presentations and other work that was actually done um, at the forum. Uh, there's, there's a lot of, of work there, that, including a, a survey of various approaches to ontologies and many links um, to that kind of work. So I encourage everyone to, uh, to check that out. Uh, if we move to slide three, the, the challenge um, that we faced at, at the summit last year um, was a, a kind of, I guess, we were a victim of our success in many ways. Um, originally, ontologies were proposed to enable uh, the sharing and reuse of knowledge. Um, the, however, the, the, the sheer range of the work 
that people are doing in ontologies, um, including taxonomies, uh, thesauri, uh, uh, topic maps, um, all the way to the different kinds of uh, formal ontologies in, in different logical languages like OWL and common logic. Um, there's such a, a, a large volume of work that we there is the possibility that um, people will be developing ontologies, um, but without a common understanding of, of their definition, um, their implementation of these ontologies, and the different kinds of, of applications of the ontologies. And, of course, this would defeat the original motivation uh, for ontologies, which was sharing and reuse. And so it would be a tragedy if we had such um, uh, a range of work that we weren't able to share what we were doing with each other and to reuse the work that each of us had done. Uh, and this, this kind of is how this is related to what we're talking about uh, in this year's Ontology Summit, uh, because effectively, if we have a successful open ontology repository, then we will have delivered to some degree the vision of having a, uh, of delivering the, the sharing and reuse of the ontologies that we're building. So if you move to, to slide four, the objective that we had, the kind of the concrete objective that we had uh, at the workshop, at, at the summit, was to provide some kind of framework. And the slogan um, that I liked was, we wanted to support diversity of approaches without that divergence, um, right? So we wanted to maintain the shareability uh, and reusability of these different approaches to ontologies, but allow the different approaches to flourish and to interact with each other. And so along these lines, what we sought to do was to come up with a set of characteristics uh, that were common to all approaches. Um, and then along with those commonalities, identifying uh, different sets of features that could be used to distinguish among these different approaches. And so already you can kind of see where this is uh, coming up to uh, uh, today's um, uh, panel, where if we're identifying characteristics and features, concretely what we're going to be talking about here are different kinds of, of ontology metadata. So on slide five, um, what we have in common to all of the different approaches, the wide range of approaches, like I said, all the way from uh, folksonomies through thesauri through to uh, first-order logic axioms, uh, is that the ontologies that people are building will be including a vocabulary together with some way of specifying the meanings um, of the terms that are in that vocabulary. And this specification can include um, identifying the, the fundamental categories in a particular domain, uh, the ways in which members of categories are related to each other, uh, the, the different kinds of relationships that there are uh, between these um, uh, categories and, and the members of the categories. And the ways in which different uh, approaches differ is in the nature of that specification. Now, there was some reluctance to having a, a kind of an if and only if necessary and sufficient conditions definition for ontology um, you know, for fear that we would be uh, excluding different kinds of approaches. Um, but you know, if for any Wittgensteinian people out there, at least we're going to have some kind of you know, family resemblances uh, between uh, the different kinds of approaches. And so starting off with these commonalities is a good place to go. Um, and so the idea would be, well, okay, well, how do we specify the ways in which, uh, ways in which we can distinguish uh, different approaches to ontologies? And this led to uh, dimensions um, on slide six. And so the idea would be, that these dimensions, uh, so we're kind of having this uh, spatial metaphor here, um, which is a slightly misleading notion. I'll kind of talk about that in, in a few minutes. Um, of, uh, 
again, the dimensions are using, are we're using them to distinguish between these different approaches. And so we kind of lumped uh, these dimensions into two broad categories. Uh, the semantic dimensions, which were focused on how the ontology specifies the meaning of its vocabularies, from the pragmatic kinds of, di of dimensions, where uh, the emphasis is on the purpose and the context uh, in which the ontology is designed and used. So if you go to slide seven, uh, there were three uh, basic semantic uh, dimensions. Um, one related to uh, the expressiveness of the underlying languages that people use to represent their ontologies. Uh, the second was we called level of structure, which I'll elaborate a little bit more. And uh, the third was a notion of, of, of granularity uh, within the representation. So on, on slide uh, eight, um, one of the things we recognized was that uh, very often uh, when people are saying, well, you know, how are, are these two ontologies related to each other, they're often not talking about the content of the ontology, but they're, they're focusing on the languages that are being used uh, to, to specify the, the terms and the meanings of the terms in that ontology. And in fact, the, the semantic spectrum um, that we've seen um, uh, at, at uh, the ontology conferences and within this forum um, is really, if you look carefully at it, it really is a comparison of languages, uh, typically, rather than ontologies themselves. And even broad, speaking more broadly, uh, say like approaches to, uh, to ontologies, if there's no, let's say, formal language there. So, so this kind of led us to, to say, well, this, the, we should be focusing in on the ontology representation language as one of these dimensions, as one way in which different ontologies um, um, are, are kind of related to each other. And, and so this led to two further distinctions, um, one which was uh, model theory or the notion of, of, of a more formal approach to semantics, and, the, and another, another approach, uh, another uh, characteristic uh, known as expressiveness. So on slide nine, uh, you could kind of uh, view um, there as being kind of three other ways of, of kind of grouping things here. So again, we have this notion of dimension, uh, and dimensions often carry a connotation of metric. And that's not quite the case in, in this framework. Not, there's not always a, uh, a kind of a, of, a, of a metric along a particular dimension. Sometimes there are just different points along, uh, different points in which you can compare uh, ontologies, and in this case, ontology languages. And so you could begin at, at one end, and so if you look at the ontology spectrum, uh, you can kind of see this, this kind of gradation. So on the, on the right-hand side of the uh, ontology uh, spectrum, there were logical languages that have both a formal syntax uh, as well as a, a model-threadic semantics. In other words, the semantics in which you can, uh, there's enough machinery, formal machinery, that you can specify the, the truth value of different expressions within the language, and you can you can say that uh, you can start talking about notions of satisfiability and entailment. Uh, so languages like this include RDF, OWL, and common logic. Uh, now to the left in the ontology spectrum, typically there were what we might call semi-formal languages, like uh, XML, Express, um, which have a formal um, syntax, but don't actually have a model thread semantics. There's no, notion, no way of, of, of specifying um, truth or entailment. And then finally, there are, are numerous ontologies where the terms and definitions are specified uh, in, in uh, natural language. And so th the idea would be that, uh, I mean, this isn't necessarily like uh, every uh, ontology language has to fit in one of these boxes, but this was a representative kind of, I say, uh, regions um, along this particular dimension. Uh, on slide 10, 
Um, we can also talk uh, about, even, even when you're talking about, say, two different formal languages or two different semi-formal languages, uh, we can start, uh, we can use the property of expressiveness um, as a way of comparing the languages. And so uh, one representation is expressive as another if they can encode sell the meanings uh, of the other language. And uh, so the idea being that um, uh, you know, first-order logic is, is more expressive than, uh, than description logics, which are more expressive than um, uh, uh, taxonomies. And the thing is that this isn't, uh, again, it's not a, a kind of a metric, but it does give a partial ordering over languages because there are some things that, that uh, some languages can represent that others cannot. So, for example, swirl can represent some expressions that owl can't, and owl can represent some expressions that swirl can't. Uh, and so they would be kind of along these lines of, of expressiveness. And uh, another idea would be that uh, when describing the metadata for ontologies, you could say, well, you know, here's the language that this ontology is expressed in, but there's also an, um, other notions of uh, what's the weakest possible language that a particular uh, ontology could be uh, represented in, and this might play a key role uh, in the repository as a whole. Uh, slide 11 was the next uh, semantic dimension. Uh, and the idea was, um, so a lot, a lot of these phrases, kind of we are grappling with, uh, you know, having this intuition and then trying to uh, uh, debate kind of, well, exactly, you know, articulate the full implications of this particular uh, con notion. Um, the notion of, of, of level of structure uh, was was trying to get at this idea of, um, well, the, I guess the intuitions between, you know, say structured versus semi-structured versus unstructured approaches. So the, the, the extent to which uh, you can define the intended interpretations of the vocabulary in some logical language. So the idea being that in a structured ontology, um, we are defining it strictly using the sentences in that lang logical language, be it RDF or OWL or, or common logic. Um, whereas in a semi-structured ontology, um, not all the uh, semantics of those terms are actually captured in the language itself, but are often either in uh, additional documentation, um, perhaps maybe some special implementations. Uh, and so the idea would be that anyone using that ontology would not, uh, uh, cannot just use the uh, axioms of that ontology alone, but also have to incorporate special interpreters or uh, build implementations using this additional um, you know, kind of documentation. And then finally, there are a lot of, uh, of approaches uh, to ontologies in which the, the terms are, uh, are just simply expressed in that semi-formal or informal language. Uh, although, there, again, there's, there, there can be additional structures. So if you looked at um, uh, WordNet, for people who would consider WordNet to be an ontology, uh, you know, there is a kind of a semi-structuring there in terms of you represent your relationships in, 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 with respect to a, a fixed set of relations, uh, even if there's no underlying logical language in that case. Uh, on slide 12, uh, we have the, uh, the notion of, of uh, representational granularity. Um, and, and the idea here was rather than looking at the language uh, that the ontology is being represented in, Let's look at, at uh, the, the nature of the concepts and the, actually the nature of that specification of the, of the terms within that, that ontology. Uh, so you could say that an ontology with a, with a coarse granularity 
um, is specified using you know, very general kinds of representational primitives, um, you know, concepts uh, in a taxonomy or perhaps you know, subsumption, whereas an ontology with fine granularity would specify much more detail uh, about the properties of the concepts and the relationships. And, and, and the idea is that, you know, again, this is a dimension, in the, uh, and so it's independent of our earlier semantic dimensions, uh, because you can have, you can use a very powerful logical language to represent um, taxonomies, uh, and you can use uh, a very, um, uh, you know, a, a relatively less expressive ontology language, but ex uh, specify those concepts in a great deal of detail. Uh, so those were the three semantic dimensions. Uh, on, on slide uh, 13, uh, we had identified uh, five uh, uh, pragmatic uh, dimensions uh, related to intended use, um, the degree to which the ontology is supporting some kind of, of automated reasoning. Uh, there is a distinction between whether the ontology is a, uh, a descriptive approach or a prescriptive approach within a particular domain. Uh, there was the uh, design methodology that was used to actually build that ontology, and finally the notion of, of governance. So if we move to, to slide 14, um, it was widely recognized that ontologies are not designed in a vacuum. Ontologies are, are typically designed with respect to some kind of intended application. Now, there's a wide range of these applications, uh, sharing knowledge bases, sharing information between knowledge bases, communication among software agents or, or web services, uh, data integration, information integration of, uh, of databases, uh, the representation of a, of a natural language vocabulary, a glossary that some community has developed, and we want to be able to represent this uh, for sharing and reuse, um, using ontologies to uh, enhance um, search. And so the idea was that, that uh, to understand uh, the different reasons for uh, why an ontology includes some concepts or why an ontology uses a particular language or why an ontology uh, has a particular kind of granularity, it would provide a lot of insight into that to, uh, to explicitly identify, well, what was the intended use um, of this ontology, and then, or, or what are some other applications of this ontology, um, other, uh, either different kinds of problems the ontology is being applied for, uh, or uh, different kinds of uses that people have been um, providing with that particular ontology. And so the idea here, again, this is not a, a, a numerical measure, uh, but rather we would be coming up with a, a wide range of intended uses. Uh, and so this is actually something else that if, if uh, between now and uh, the summit at the end of this month, if uh, there were some, also, some other way of collecting also the different applications that people have put their ontologies towards. Uh, on slide 15, um, it, it was also kind of recognized that among all of these different uses, um, there, there is a significant number of, of uh, applications that at some level are using some kind of automated uh, processing here, or automated reasoning. And so one uh, uh, pragmatic dimension for characterizing ontologies had to do with identifying, well, what kinds of, of um, automated reasoning is actually being supported by uh, applications of the ontology. Um, is it a kind of a simple automated reasoning um, oriented more towards just you know kind of simple retrieval, 
Uh, are we looking at special kinds of reasoning you know, related to things like subsumption uh, within a taxonomy? Um, or is it very general kinds of, of reasoning um, that would be, say, required by um, more sophisticated um, semantic integration um, kinds of applications where we'd be doing general kinds of, of theorem proving within whatever particular language um, we're using. And now, what, again, so one, one thing to um, for people to be kind of thinking of uh, for, the, for this month's uh, summit is, uh, well, you know, is this actually a good dimension? I mean, are there... It, are, are there uh, very substantial applications of ontologies that, that do not emphasize automated reasoning? Um, and if uh, ontologies, approaches to ontologies do, then uh, can we kind of articulate what kind of reasoning uh, that ontology is being used uh, for? On slide 16, we had a, a dimension which, for lack of a better name, was just the two possibilities here. Um, there were some uses of, of ontologies um, which were primarily kind of describing um, a particular uh, kind of uh, end-user community's um, uh, idea of, of these concepts. So the intended interpretations uh, for the different terms and relationships in the ontology um, were kind of being de uh, developed out of a particular uh, community of practice, if you will. And so the, the ontology is merely describing what that community of practice means by their terms. It is not prescribing uh, or mandating um, what those entities should be and what those relationships should be or how they're characterized. Whereas there are other approaches that do, do take this uh, prescriptive approach. And you know, again, these are, or you could think of these as two uh, ends of, of, a, of a spectrum along this dimension. And uh, so there will be you know, various approaches that kind of combine uh, both a prescriptive and a descriptive approach. Uh, okay, so then on, on slide uh, 17, um, we have uh, another way of describing, again, again uh, another way of gaining insight into an ontology and the various design decisions that went into the ontology, um, the design methodology that went into uh, building it. Um, there's a, a wide range, again, you know, there's, uh, using a spatial metaphor, there were the top-down uh, approaches to ontology design, the bottom-up kinds of approaches. But it's just recognized that, that, that there's a wide range of methodologies that are used, um, all the way from uh, uh, using a, a kind of a software engineering design lifecycle with requirements and, and formal methods uh, for evaluation and verification, um, all the way to the... Uh, to, uh, I guess, the approach that uh, folks on take where there's actually no design. Uh, and, in fact, what you want the ontology to do is emerge from, uh, from a particular community of practice and identifying what tags are relevant and sharing these tags. And so, again, um, the understanding what design methodology went into that, building that ontology can give us um, uh, some insight into the, the various design decisions and, and, and perhaps different ways of looking at, at reusability. Um, so just to sum up, in, in terms of, of how we can actually, you know, use this uh, framework. So, like I said, what I've, what I've done is, is basically summarized um, and taken material from the, the communique at last year's summit and try to organize it in some way. 
Um, but what we were hoping was that the, the general framework uh, that was proposed last year can actually become real and actually become used uh, by uh, kind of taking, using this ontology framework as the basis for specifying the metadata, uh, right? So that we want to be able to have the properties and characteristics that describe different ontologies. The, the framework was meant to do that. The framework, like, like I said, we wanted to have diversity without divergence. And so uh, if we can at least share kind of this metadata for describing our ontologies, then everything can be in the same repository and we will be able to, to share, right? So, uh, and, and the other idea is we want to be able to compare uh, ontologies, uh, particularly when they are def defined, you know, developed using different methodologies, uh, when they're developed for different intended applications, uh, you know, for different purposes, and to be able to kind of say, well, you know, to what extent can we share and what are places where, you know, there are some fundamental differences and those have to be um, dealt with. And so that's really what we're after. I mean, we're, we're, so for people that, that were worried that there was going to be a, a, a kind of an exclusionary definition for ontologies, um, we really wanted, again, to be able to say, uh, identify these uh, properties and then characterize those conditions under which ontologies can be shared and can be reused uh, and, and say, if, if we can do that uh, this year, then uh, well, we'll have a very successful summit. Thanks. Um, okay, so now taking my panelist hat off, donning my chair hat. Okay. Um, so our, our, our next um, speaker um, will be uh, Peter Haas. Uh, Peter is a, a senior researcher uh, at the uh, Institute of Applied Informatics and Formal Description Methods uh, at the University of Karlsruhe. Uh, he has worked on, on numerous uh, ontology uh, projects, most recently the European uh, NEON uh, project, uh, which is the uh, lifecycle support for uh, network, networked ontologies. And uh, he will be presenting today uh, the OMV, uh, the Ontology Metadata uh, Vocabulary. Uh, that was the result of uh, an outcome of that particular project. Uh, so, Peter, take it away. I'll, I'll give you a... a Three-minute warning after 20 minutes. Is that okay? Okay, thanks. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, what I want to do is give you a brief overview over OMV, the ontology metadata vocabulary, and also talk uh, a little bit about uh, applications of OMV. So, slide two. I guess the motivation I can uh, keep really short uh, in the recent uh, previous presentations, we have heard a lot about why we need an ontology about ontologies to be able to capture metadata about ontologies, and uh, most of the reasons are certainly related to the issue of sharing, finding, and reusing ontologies uh, with requirements related to the provenance of ontologies, who created the ontology, when and why, where we may want to ask questions about the content of the ontology, the applicability for particular domains, and so on. But there are also much more specific requirements for particular activities in the ontology lifecycle, for example, when it comes to ontology maintenance, uh, evolution, and so on. And I guess there's also no doubt uh, that it would be useful to describe metadata about ontologies in uh, some standardized way by agreeing on uh, a common vocabulary, if not even uh, an ontology to do so. So slide three. So this is actually what we... Uh, 
try to do with now OMB. OMB is a proposal uh, for a metadata vocabulary about ontologies. And uh, my impression is that OMV already uh, fulfills many of the requirements that we have uh, heard about in the past. So OMV is uh, a metadata schema that uh, captures reuse relevant information about ontologies. It's designed in a way that it uh, consists uh, of a core and extensions where the OMV core contains uh, fundamental information about an ontology that is really relevant for the uh, entire life cycle and the extensions then uh, take the detailed accounts uh, that are relevant for specific phases uh, of the ontology life cycle or that are uh, really application specific. OMV uh, itself is designed as an ontology and more precisely it's uh, realized uh, in the ODL uh, fragment of uh, the web ontology language. Uh, this of course does not mean that uh, it can only describe uh, ontologies in ODL but uh, instead OMV itself uh, in that fragment. Uh, so on slide four, uh, what does actually uh, OMB now describe? Uh, OMB organizes the metadata elements uh, along various dimensions. Uh, first of all, along the type and purpose of the contained uh, information. And uh, so what are the categories that we find there? We find uh, general information that contains, for example, name, description, uh, language of the ontology, when it was created, when last modified, things like that. Um, we then have a category for availability of the ontology, uh, where it is located, where it can be uh, retrieved from, under what license is it available, etc. We have a a category that talks about applicability of the ontology, where we capture uh, the type of ontology. Is it an upper-level ontology, a domain ontology, or application ontology? Uh, where we talk about the formality level. Is it a highly uh, axiomatized ontology or the taxonomy or really a lightweight ontology? Where we capture uh, the domain of the ontology that it, that it describes via linking to uh, other existing uh, classification schemes where we describe the task that the ontology was designed for, for example, for uh, tasks related to search, annotation, uh, integration purposes, etc., and where we also describe uh, known usages of the ontology. Then in the category of format, uh, we describe aspects like the ontology language, ontology in OWL, RDF, and so on, and also the uh, particular uh, serialization syntax. For example, in the case uh, of OWL, the ontology might be serialized in OWL XML or also in OWL RDF or some other existing syntax. So this is captured uh, in this format category. Then we have a category that talks uh, about provenance, who created the ontology, who contributed to it, uh, using which tools uh, was the ontology created, using which methodology, ontology engineering methodology, and so on. We have a category that describes uh, the relationships with other ontologies, for example, uh, other ontologies that are imported uh, by this ontology, compatibility uh, with other ontologies, uh, previous uh, uh, versions of the ontology and so on. And finally, category about statistics uh, that contains mainly information related to the size of the ontologies, that is uh, number of classes, properties, number of axioms, etc. Uh, and then uh, metadata uh, elements are also categorized uh, along whether um, they are required attributes, 
uh, or optional. Okay. So on uh, slide five, uh, you essentially uh, see the main part of the OMB uh, ontology um, as a class diagram. And as the main central class, uh, you really see the ontology with its attributes and then the relationships with uh, the other important classes uh, in the ontology, like party on the right with subclasses, uh, organization and person uh, that describes, describes, for example, the relationship uh, yeah, who contributed to the ontology, who created it, uh, and so on. Uh, so I have already mentioned many of the uh, elements, but here you basically uh, see what has been modeled as a class, as a relationship, uh, attribute, and so on. Uh, what you don't see in this diagram is really instance level. So many of the classes have already predefined instances, for example, uh, when it comes to the ontology languages, uh, tools, tasks, methodologies, and so on. So these are things that... Uh, uh, where, where we already have predefined uh, in, in this. Okay, uh, on slide six, uh, I mentioned that uh, besides uh, this uh, core OMD ontology, we also have uh, uh, we also foresee extensions, and uh, there are already a number of extensions uh, available. I here listed a couple of them. There's an extension uh, that uh, allows to talk about mappings between ontologies, so this is really to capture uh, metadata about the mappings. We have an extension that uh, allows to talk about changes to ontologies, so for example, to describe the uh, differences between versions. An extension to describe uh, multilingual aspects uh, of uh, the ontologies. And uh, another extension that we have is uh, uh, specifically for PCP-like applications where um, well, that decentralized peers in the network uh, may share ontologies and then uh, can describe metadata about these peers. And then, of course, uh, developers are free to create uh, new specific extensions uh, to OMB. Slide seven. Uh, so how can you actually get to OMB? How is it made available? Uh, OMB has a website, omb.ontoware.org, where you can uh, download the actual ontology, uh, technical report that describes the ontology and you also get uh, various other additional information. So the OMD ontology is hosted at this uh, ontoware system. Maybe a couple of words about uh, the system. This is essentially a source code management system, uh, both for ontology-based um, uh, software, open source software, but also for, uh, for hosting ontologies. And, uh, well, the system is quite heavily used, for example, for the OMB ontology, we uh, already had 28,000 downloads uh, from that system. Okay. Uh, so, this, uh, so, so much uh, as an introduction uh, to uh, the ontology metadata vocabulary. I now, on slide 8, want to talk uh, a little bit about uh, the NEON project and how we make use of OMB in this project. So NEON, uh, full name is uh, Lifecycle Support for Network Ontologies. This is a large integrated project sponsored by the European Union with uh, 14 European partners where we have really um, yeah, united many of the key players in semantic technologies uh, in Europe. So besides the University of uh, Karlsruhe, uh, we have the Open University, uh, UPN uh, University in Madrid involved on the research side. Uh, we have... Uh, strong commercial partners like Software AG, uh, Enterprise, and uh, numerous other partners. Yeah? And uh, the goal of this project 
really is to create an open service-oriented infrastructure for developing and managing dynamic network and contextualized ontologies. And um, one key outcome um, as part of this infrastructure is the uh, Neon Toolkit uh, for engineering network ontologies, and um, I will talk a little bit uh, about this uh, Neon Toolkit uh, on the uh, subsequent slide. So on uh, slide nine, I just uh, mentioned some of the key issues that are relevant in Neon. And uh, one key aspect really is uh, reuse of oncology. So, so the ability uh, to bring in information from the semantic web uh, when building uh, ontologies and ontology-based applications, uh, the ability to support application development by integrating multiple ontologies, uh, ability to manage relationships between ontologies over time, etc. Then another uh, important aspect is collaboration really at large scale, where we want to support uh, distributed uh, teams of ontology engineers and uh, domain specialists. And then there's another aspect, aspect uh, contextualization of ontologies. And for all of these issues, uh, comprehensive ontology metadata is uh, is really critical. Um, on slide 10, uh, what you see is uh, yeah just a screenshot uh, of the Neon Toolkit, uh, where you actually see the uh, OMV ontology loaded. Um, the toolkit. Now the toolkit really is an uh, ontology engineering environment that is uh, intended to address the complete lifecycle uh, of network ontology. So it's not only uh, an ontology editor, but provides components in the form of uh, plugins that support the entire ontology lifecycle. So what you will see in the screenshot is only uh, the editor part, uh, but there are many other uh, interesting components uh, that make use uh, of uh, OMB in various ways. And how that is done, I want to uh, briefly show on slide 11. Uh, so we use OMB um, in the system to uh, achieve interoperability on various levels. First of all, on the on the metadata level, um, where uh, where we essentially enable components to exchange metadata about ontologies uh, using these OMB descriptions, but we also want to uh, achieve interoperability in the uh, on the tool level to support uh, application and tool developers by uh, providing common interfaces to components like registries, repositories, and so on. And to achieve that, we also uh, have proposals for uh, OMB APIs, uh, Java APIs, web service APIs, and so on. So um, I now want to talk about two uh, specific examples or two uh, type of component where we uh, use OMV. The first example is uh, how we use OMV in our ontology registries. Uh, there we actually have, we have uh, two implementations of, uh, of an ontology registry. One is uh, the Oyster system as an open source uh, implementation and another one is um, Centrosite uh, registry as a commercial uh, product of Software AG that also already implements uh, the OMV proposal. And then the other uh, example is um, the Watson system. Watson as a gateway to the semantic web. You can think of it uh, as a as a Google uh, for, uh, for the semantic web. And uh, what I want to show there is uh, just one small part of this uh, Watson system that is essentially a web interface for searching uh, ontologies and uh, semantic documents. Okay, uh, slide 12. What you see is, uh, yeah, this is just a screenshot of um, one of our registries, of the Oyster registry. 
um, open source uh, uh, decentralized uh, registry, decentralized in a way uh, that this is not just one a single um, instance of a registry, but instead uh, it's uh, organized in a peer-to-peer like fashion where you can have uh, multiple uh, local instances of this registry uh, and these instances of the registry are then uh, uh, synchronized, communicate uh, in a peer-to-peer uh, fashion. And what you see here is uh, the user interface to one of these uh, local instances. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't want to go into too much detail, but basically what uh, what you can do in this interface is uh, on the left uh, side of the window, uh, essentially the, uh, the part where you enter um, yeah, enter your, your search request so you can formulate queries or uh, search requests for ontologies in terms of the ontology metadata vocabulary. So you can enter specific attributes uh, according to OMB and uh, then basically get a, a result uh, from the decentralized network, a result list of ontologies that are available uh, in this OISTA system. Yeah? And you get, uh, again, these results uh, described in terms of uh, OMB. So this is uh, uh, essentially how we um, have implemented OMB in, uh, in the Oyster Ontology Registry. So then on uh, slide 13, uh, as another example, uh, the Watson system. As I said, you can think of uh, Watson as the gateway to the semantic web. What Watson does is it uh, calls and indexes uh, semantic data that is available on the web uh, that can then be used uh, for various purposes, both by users and applications, for example, um, or searching for ontology is just one example. Other examples would include uh, uh, purposes like question answering, ontology building, and so on. So what you see on the slide is uh, essentially just a web interface to the Watson system, uh, which allows you to search for ontologies in a Google-like uh, fashion. Uh, so here the user has just uh, entered the search term "wine." and he will get uh, a list of ontologies uh, that in some way uh, talk about uh, Vine. Yeah? And uh, if the user now clicks on one of these uh, search results, then he will get uh, what you see on uh, slide 14, which is essentially more detailed information about this particular ontology. And this uh, metadata, again, is described uh, using the ontology metadata vocabulary. And uh, in this slide, oh, uh, slide 14 should be showing. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. Uh, there's a request on the chat board uh, to ask you to slow down a little, uh, and also your voice is a bit woofy. So. Uh, woofy mean, meaning what? Maybe too close to the microphone. Oh, okay. So I try to improve on this. Yeah. Is this better yeah, but, now? But if you slow down a little bit, it will probably help. Okay. Uh, yeah, I will try to slow down and take, uh, take the time. Okay, so uh, on slide 14, uh, yeah, you just see the uh, details for this particular ontology uh, described in terms of OMB. And what you also see, there is a link uh, which says get OMB. And well, if you click on that, then uh, in OMB is what is shown on slide uh, 15. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, on slide 16, uh, we then see uh, another uh, interesting uh, use of the Watson system, uh, where we've actually built uh, a plugin for the Neon Toolkit that uh, interacts with the Watson system 
And uh, while well, this plugin is essentially um, well intended uh, to support you in building an ontology with the Neon Toolkit, and uh, while well, it's uh, intended to support reuse, yeah, so it uh, allows you to find a description of uh, existing entities uh, in web ontologies that are uh, stored in the, in the Vault system, and you can very easily uh, integrate these existing descriptions into the ontology that you're editing. Um, it should be on slide 16 currently. Um, yeah. So now this screen should be shown. So what you, so this is uh, very small, but essentially the idea is what you see on the uh, left side of the screenshot is essentially your ontology, and you can uh, very easily simply click uh, on one of these concepts and uh, get proposed uh, refinements for. Uh, these concepts based on uh, descriptions that are already available uh, in the Watson uh, system. Yeah? Okay, um, so much about uh, these applications. Um, on slide 17, I have just uh, compiled some uh, information about well, the history and uh, the future of, um, of OMD and uh, the OMD consortium that we have just uh, recently founded. So a couple of words about uh, the history. So the um, OMD standard or proposal was originally de developed in another uh, European sponsored, uh, European Union sponsored project in, in the Knowledge Lab project by uh, UPM, the AIFB, and the Technical University in Berlin. Uh, after uh, the Knowledge Lab project uh, had ended, we have taken up the development uh, to some extent in the NEON project, and we have founded the uh, OMB consortium to sustain the development of OMB. So the OMB consortium is not really a legal entity, it's rather, uh, well, just a group of people interested in uh, further developing OMB. So there are several organizations that have already uh, expressed interest in using OMB and contributing to OMB. Uh, so these groups include uh, um, um, the Stanford groups, and Natasha will be talking uh, about uh, some of uh, the users of OMB uh, in the, in the BioPortal ontology repository. So uh, the Stanford group actually has already contributed a lot to the uh, development of OMB, and uh, also the OMG uh, has expressed interest to, uh, to use OMB in uh, their ontology repository. Um, we have also discussed uh, different alternative uh, models for standardizations uh, for OMB, so there's no final decision on this yet. One option here was to well, essentially make uh, OMB a detective standard, uh, but provide support for it, uh, within Protege and the NIAM. We have also uh, discussed alternatives for standardization within organizations like uh, SCI International or the NIAM Foundation and um, the OMG uh, ontology PSIG will also be uh, one option uh, for addressing standardization. Okay, um, on slide 18, just as a very uh, short summary. So I talked a bit about uh, OMG as a vocabulary to represent metadata about ontologies. Uh, there are already several applications uh, existing that they use of OMG. We're currently uh, further developing uh, OMB, uh, yeah, OMB within the OMB consortium. This consortium is really open for everyone to join and contribute. Standardization models uh, are still being discussed, uh, 
but uh, in general, we're very happy to uh, discuss any models uh, for collaboration. So this is really the end of my presentation. Yeah, so thanks. Well, thank you very much, Peter. Yeah, that's uh, excellent work. I think uh, it fits quite well into everything that's uh, being discussed uh, at this year's summit. So uh, you, will you be uh, at, uh, attending the, uh, the summit? Uh, I will not be there physically. Oh. Oh, okay. No. Okay. Um, so next up, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, next up, we have uh, Natasha Noy uh, from the uh, Stanford Center for Biomedical Informatics. Uh, Natasha has been uh, quite influential in uh, the development and propagation of, of protege and, and other uh, techniques for ontology mapping. And today she'll uh, be talking about the BioPortal, uh, which is uh, being developed uh, at the National Center for Biomedical Ontology. Uh, Natasha, take it away. Uh, thank you, Michael. Uh, so I will be talking about the so – there was already a talk about a wire portal. Mark Newton presented wire portal uh, in this forum uh, a few uh, meetings back. So I'll briefly review what wire portal is, but then talk more about the requirements for metadata for ontologies. And uh, I will then uh, men, uh, discuss on the again and elaborate on some of the points that Peter has made in terms of how we use that and how it is applicable in our setting. Uh, so next slide, please. Slide two. Thank you. So the National Center for Biomedical Ontology is a consortium um, of several organizations. Um, and one of the things that we're developing is BioPortal, uh, which we see is an open source repository of ontologies, um, terminologies, and thesauri in biomedicine. Uh, one thing I want to note that even though we are talking about ontologies in biomedicine, uh, pretty much everything that we're developing is domain independent. So all the technology is domain independent and open source, and you know you can just take it and use it as ontology repository for any types of ontologies. So there's uh, there's some links in the slides for the uh, first, uh, the BioPortal 1.0, and then an alpha version of BioPortal that has uh, some additional features. Uh, but you're welcome to access these and browse and contribute. Uh, so the goal for BioPortal is to provide a repository both for users who come in using a web browser uh, to um, uh, find ontologies to understand what's there, as well as to um, access them programmatically via web services. Uh, slide three, please. Um, so there is a screenshot, I don't know how well you can see it, of how the um, initial screen, if you're browsing the repository, looks like. So you can see the list of ontologies, some simple metadata. Um, the repository is open, anyone can contribute. Um, the original set of ontologies came from the Open Biomedical Ontologies repository and has expanded since. Uh, new ontologies are being added. Um, and so each ontology is described by a set of uh, metadata, uh, which, which is presented in slide four. So slide four is a screenshot for one of the ontologies uh, recently added to BioPortal, which is Burnlex, which is an ontology or terminology for annotating uh, images uh, uh, in uh, neurological images, and you can see some of the fields there. And for the moment, internally, 
in the implementation we're actually using we're using some proprietary format, but one of the things that's very high on our agenda is to switch to using OMV so that we can uh, adjust the metadata that people see and uh, can enter. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, so once you see the metadata for an ontology, you can browse an ontology, you can see different visualizations, um, you can add uh, nodes uh, uh, to ontologies and ontology components, you can um, add mappings between uh, uh, classes in different ontologies, um, and so on. So since there was a talk about BioPortal, I won't mention, I won't talk about BioPortal itself anymore, but I want to focus on the metadata itself and uh, the challenges, actually, some of the our requirements in this setting that I just described uh, and the challenges that we face when trying to implement it and some of the approaches. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, slide six. Um, so the major, as we see, the major function of ontology metadata, and in fact, ontology repository is when the user, uh, uh, when the user comes into the ontology, click, please. Um, basically, many users come to such repositories with some task at hand and trying to figure out, can I reuse something? Is there something in this repository uh, that would answer my requirements and has someone used something similar? Uh, uh, has, uh, has used one of the ontologies for similar tasks? Click, please. Um, so, sources, sources and ontology metadata provided, uh, provides one of the main sources for such answers, uh, in addition to browsing the ontologies themselves. So traditional ontology metadata is provided by um, ontology authors. Uh, there could also be, and we plan to include some computable metadata, uh, such as, you know, from simple things like the number of classes or instances of properties in the ontology to um, running reasoners and uh, or if there, is, there are any other services that we can use to produce some computable assessment of the quality of the ontologies or something that would help users answer that, per, that pertinent question, uh, which ontology should I use for my task? We'll plan to incorporate that. Um, and also what we include in Bar Portal is the uh, something that's um, relevant uh, for the discussion that was uh, on the list, uh, that was very active on the list. Uh, is also the uh, metadata provided by the community, and I'll talk about that a little bit more uh, later. Um, slide seven, please. So if we try to summarize the requirements for ontology metadata, so first it has to be, whatever solution we adopt, it should be flexible, easy to change, easy to extend, uh, mostly because we don't necessarily have all the answers right now. We don't necessarily know what are the what is the most useful set of metadata? And I think we need to experiment. And one of the one of the reasons, one of the main reasons, we're using um, an ontology-based approach for representing metadata is so that we can essentially swap it out from the background, put in a different version of OMV, for example, and have a different set of metadata. We really do need to experiment with that. We have some initial cut, but we don't have a very good sense yet of, of what are the really important fields there. Another key thing is support for ontology versioning, um, which is something that hasn't come up all that often in the discussions here, I think. Um, so if you think about this, and I'll 
if you think about this, you know, new, any new version of an ontology can invalidate any of the metadata or any of the values in that metadata. And I'll come back to that. Um, ideally, uh, we would like to be able to reuse this metadata across different repositories. So if someone, if there is a set of ontologies in Neon that, that are annotated using the same metadata ontology, the same ontology of ontologies that Fireportal uses, we can exchange that information easily if we share the ontology for obvious reasons. Um, and then we want uh, the representation to be uh, usable, you know, queryable by standard uh, languages such as Sparkle or basically using standard mechanisms, not trying to reinvent the wheel there. So this is the requirements. And um, next slide, please. So and that's a, all of these requirements let us collaborate with, with the cultural group. They've already started. They've already had a good chunk of OMV developed within the NEON project, and we uh, we, st we, we started the collaboration contributing some of the things that we felt were important, and we are, do plan to adopt OMV as the metadata schema for ontologies in Bioportal. Um, and the key features uh, that some of them were there, some of them were developed jointly, that, that are really important for us from the Bioportal point of view are the following. One is support for ontology versioning, um, then support for, as I would call, extrinsic information. Maybe it's not a very good term for it, but the idea are things like things that are, in fact, very useful uh, in, in evaluating the ontology, in assessing whether ontology is appropriate for you, which are things like, you know, references to papers that talk about the ontology, uh, reports of usage. You know, I used this ontology in this setting, and it worked great or I tried to use this ontology in my decision support system and it really doesn't have enough, um, you know, axioms there to uh, drive the system, things like that. And then also what is very interesting, you know, as Peter talked about, this, uh, this separation into core and extensions, and we envision, for example, extensions for user-based evaluations so that we can separate those things and if some repositories don't, have, for example, this community-based evaluation, they don't have to use it. Uh, if some want to focus more on logic-based properties, they can add that part of metadata, and we, for example, don't have to use that. Um, next slide, please. Uh, slide nine. So I talked about versioning, and I want to uh, spend a few more minutes on that because I think this is an uh, important issue that hasn't really been brought up all that much. So if we think, uh, click with. So if you think about, uh, we have some version of ontology, uh, next, and next click, um, there is some metadata about it. Um, then someone pulls, uh, puts a new version of that ontology in the repository click. Uh, so the question is on the next click, is the metadata still valid? And if you think about the, for example, the metadata fields that Peter mentioned uh, that are in his slides, almost any one of them can change. You know, the author of the ontology, maybe someone else is now authoring it. Uh, you know, it can now be developed in a different language. Uh, its scope could be extended. Uh, coverage, you know, the level of support could get better or worse. Uh, you know, licensing. Pretty much anything you can think of can change from one version to another. Uh, that being said, most of the time it actually doesn't. So and that's the one of the things that we were trying to figure out pragmatically what is the best way to address it because um, on the one hand, you want to enable this 
change and you want to store the information with the previous version, uh, but at the same time you don't want to have the authors when they submit a new version, uh, you know, go in and type everything over again. Next sl slide 10, please. It's, uh, oh, I'm sorry, so there was a uh, slide 10, please. Um, so the solution that we, we adopted and OMV adopts now, click, uh, so that each version has a, a metadata description of its own. So, you know, version 1 will have its own metadata description. Version 2 will have its own metadata description. Uh, next click. Uh, and then, um, oh, it doesn't show up, I guess. And then we basically, thank you, copy and uh, copy, when the new version is submitted, we copy all the metadata from the previous version, but then let the authors change pretty much anything they want. And so if you think, look at OMV more carefully, you will also see that each description, each instance of a uh, metadata description refers to an ontology version and not to the whole ontology. Um, and there, is a, there are ways to link them to versions to each other. Um, next slide, please. Uh, slide 11. Uh, so, uh, in, so as I said, uh, so the things that are key to us in OMV, one was the versioning support. Another one is support for these types of pragmatic considerations. Um, uh, that is, so, so actually another set of pragmatic considerations for versioning is, um, so most of the supply metadata remains unchanged, so we allow the copy of by default. But another interesting thing is, if we view the user supplied metadata, such as additional references, usage reports, and so on, well, we can reasonably expect authors, when they submit a new version to update their metadata, users will often not come back and worry about updating their review or worry about, you know, um, adding, saying, you know, yes, I didn't like this feature of this ontology, but now, you know, they created a new version and it works just fine. And um, so, again, this is something that we just need to deal with. And the solution that, we're, that we are adopting to that is that when you're looking at the version of an ontology, uh, you will see the you will um, see the metadata for the previous version as well, but versions as well. But you will see that they were created for the previous version. And if one, you know when you open a book for Amazon, you could, uh, it tells you that this review was for the previous edition of the book. That kind of thing. But again, it's something that's important to consider in a repository because uh, version, you know, particularly in biomedical ontologies, uh, they're versions very frequently and new versions come up very frequently. Um, okay, slide 12. Uh, so versioning was one key feature. Another one key metadata field that we feel are very important, again, from the user point of view. And here we're really focusing, again, on that user who comes in trying to figure out if there are ontologies here that he or she can reuse. So obviously things like provenance, you know, where the ontology comes from, what are the licensing conditions are key. Uh, policy for maintenance and distribution, uh, you know, things like domain and scope. Uh, other things that are important, um, things like key classes. If I'm trying to understand this ontology, where should I start? Where, where are the real hubs of the ontology? And there are methods to find these automatically. Um, there's no good evidence on whether or not these methods work very well. Uh, but any, and maybe sometimes the authors would know better when they're presenting the ontology, where do they start? Things like paper refer references to papers, I think, are very important. Um, 
papers that describe the ontology itself, papers that critique the ontology, um, and also papers that talk about using that ontology uh, in, in different projects. Again, if I'm trying to figure out if I should use this ontology, these usage reports are very, very useful. Um, and lists of, you know, links to projects that use the ontology. Um, uh, slide 15, please. So if we go back, so who should provide the metadata for this user who comes in with this question of trying to find the ontology and clicks? Uh, please. Uh, thank you. So the people who know the answer to this question, uh, which ontology is appropriate, uh, are really maybe ontology authors, not always, uh, and other users of it. And uh, click. And what the ontology of ontologies should allow us to represent, the metadata that should also be there are things like reviews and ratings and usage reports from other users. And if we... Um, Look at this, and if we look at the metadata provided by the authors and provided by the users of slide 14, there's actually a fair amount of overlap. So, you know, authors would usually, and another important point here, when we're representing metadata, when we talk about ontologies of ontologies, this information should be there. We should, rep, we should store as one of the fields whether that metadata came from the author or from the, one of the users of the ontology. So, you know, authors could provide, obviously, only the authors know the licensing and maintenance policies. Um, only the users could probably provide reviews and ratings. But then there is this overlap, uh, you know, things like references. Authors know some papers about their ontologies, but maybe not others. Uh, logical consistency. Maybe authors didn't bother to run certain um, reasoners to find out um, if their ontology is consistent, but some users have. Um, you know, authors may say that quality of documentation is great, whereas the users would disagree and say, no, it's actually pretty pretty low, and so on. So um, uh, slide 15, uh, in fact, it, it is important to keep this information, not just the names of the people or whatever, some user IDs of the people who are submitting the metadata, but also whether they are authors or users, because, you know, they could contradict things like, like I said, quality of documentation, or, you know, authors may choose not to put references to papers that are critical of the ontology. And whatever the metadata schema that we use, it should enable this diversity of views and conflicting, conflicting views um, so that users can understand, those who are trying to figure, to assess the ontology can figure out where the information is coming from and which, which information they happen to trust. Uh, last slide, 16, please. We're still early in this process, and we're still learning all these lessons, uh, and we're still trying to figure out um, what are the best ways to approach it. Some of the things that um, seem to be emerging, uh, so as we're trying to figure out what, how to represent the metadata, we really need to, to remember what it is for. And in, our, in this pragmatic case in Barport, well, the large part is to helping users find those right ontologies where right is in quotes and the slide is really what is right for them. Flexibility of the scheme is the key. We really don't know what it, uh, we, we don't have enough experience to say exactly what it should look like, so we're still in the experimental stages. Uh, maintenance across ontology versions is essential. Maintenance of metadata, not the metadata schema or ontology of ontology, but uh, maintenance of the metadata itself. Um, and support for the plurality of fields. Thank you.
Thank you, Natasha. That was great. Uh, I really like the uh, the emphasis on kind of an experimental approach. I think that's something that we really need to, uh, to emphasize in a lot of the uh, discussions. Uh, it's when things are actually used that we find out what's useful. Um, okay, so our uh, fourth and uh, final speaker today will be Elisa Kendall. Elisa is at uh, Sandpiper Software, and she has been uh, influential in spearheading a lot of uh, ontology-related uh, efforts uh, within OMG. And uh, today... She will be uh, talking about one of those efforts, um, metadata support for the Emerging Ontology and Vocabulary Management Initiative at OMG. Uh, Lisa? Okay, thanks very much, Michael. So um, if you would go to the next slide, please, Peter. Um, Evan Wallace spoke a little bit about our uh, activities at OMG uh, in the first of these three seminars. Um, where we have put together a request for information for um, what people are doing and what we might consider it, uh, doing at OMG to provide an ontology and vocabulary management capability and repository hosted at the OMG. Um, and there are a number of reasons why we're investigating this, in part because we are beginning to standardize some vocabularies and ontologies at OMG that we need to publish. And so creating a vehicle for publication um, is really what we're interested in doing. And so what I'm going to be talking about is, is much less concrete than what you heard from uh, Natasha and Peter, for example, but we hope to leverage their work and that of others in order to inform uh, our approach to building out this repository. So I'll um, hope to talk about some of the motivation, uh, some related work that's been ongoing in the W3C Semantic Web Deployment Working Group. Um, that's the group that's responsible primarily for publishing SCA, so the Simple uh, Knowledge Organization System thesaurus um, vocabulary. Um, and so here, things that we've asked for in this RFI um, include a lot of the things that Natasha and Peter already talked about. So um, from a repository perspective, what is your experience with applications for for deploying such a repository, for publishing ontologies and vocabularies. What kind of tooling do you use for that? What kind of tool interoperability is required? Clearly, being able to search and find ontologies and vocabularies that you want to reuse uh, is important, so query and accessibility is high on our list. Um, also, from an OMG perspective, we're talking about artifacts that are developed um, to support OMG standards, so for example, um, an ontology or vocabulary that would be represented in UML, but also vocabularies that are represented in a new standard that's kind of a structured English standard, some of you may be familiar with, called uh, Semantics for Business Vocabulary and Rules, or SBVR, and also um, vocabularies and ontologies developed using um, components of the ontology definition meta model or ODM, which uh, supports representing ontologies um, in RDF, OWL, common logic, and topic maps. 
uh, using the ONG standards. So we're looking for not only being able to manage these various kinds of artifacts, but also to be able to connect them to one another. So, for example, if at OMG we publish some kind of a vocabulary uh, for dates and times, for example, and there is an ongoing RFP to uh, experiment with that, then we want to have the artifacts represented using, say, an SBVR structured English approach mapped to the RDF and OWL vocabularies that use exactly the same terms or mapped to at least the same UML artifacts that we would publish using the ODM standard um, and map those back and forth between SBVR and ODM and provide all of those capabilities to our potential user base. So the mapping features here are really critical, and so we're looking for input on best practices that people have used in order to create such mappings between ontologies that are um, already published. So some of the work, again, done by the BioPortal is critical to inform what we want to do. Uh, other standards of practice, um, any other things other people are doing that might compete with this activity or that might inform it that we don't know about already, um, and then examples of repositories in addition to the ones we're familiar with. So um, metadata support for many of the aspects that have been covered today um, and in particular to support this um, mapping among different kinds of artifacts produced by OMG standards is critical to our work. Uh, slide three, please. So the RFI itself, the document that is the request for information, um, the link is there on the slide, and is publicly available from the OMG. And the purpose of that um, RFI is really to inform us on how we might proceed to publish such a repository and make it available for the community to use. Anybody can respond. Anybody from this uh, community is absolutely welcome to respond, and we would really hope that some of you would. Um, and our emphasis in that RFI is really on three different kinds of issues in metadata for content management. Uh, the provenance issues that Natasha highlighted on the last couple of slides that she presented and that are uh, really quite well done in the OMV work that Peter presented effectivity, um, and this goes to Natasha's slide about what contributions from a metadata perspective might come from the community of users as opposed from the ontology developers. So um, how, how is it applicable? How is it used? Uh, how well does it serve the purpose that somebody has applied it to? And also for ontology evolution, how we track change um, and versioning, especially uh, in thinking about the mappings between the various artifacts that we want to maintain in the repository. Slide four, please. So um, as a precursor to this work, we've been working on a, a note um, that's currently in a working draft state at the W3C on vocabulary management and in looking at ju just RDF vocabularies, simple vocabularies that have been um, reused over and over and over again that people are very comfortable with, that you hear about all the time, um, that have communities that are very strong around them and that have continued to evolve, that haven't stagnated over the last several years. What are some key aspects of those? What are key vocabularies we're seeing that people are reusing a lot? And what are some features of those 
that we might exploit that would help us understand how to improve reuse and improve the usability of the things that we might put in our repository. Some of those uh, ontologies or vocabularies I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with, the Dublin Core, for example, SCOS I already mentioned, which is coming out of the Semantic Web Deployment Working Group. Um, one that I'm going to point out here that's very interesting um, is FinOnto. And this is an ontology project that's being conducted by Finland. It's sort of a national project. Um, and we didn't see in our research any other national project like this. Only the Finnish have been doing this. And I understand from talking with people that are involved or observing this activity that it's because they feel that their national heritage is threatened. And so they really want to capture all kinds of knowledge about their culture, about their art, about their history um, in this ontology project. And there is a really very strong, very active community involved in developing these ontologies. And so what was important to us was to understand why this is working so well, what's happening that is um, really supporting that work, what kinds of things do, can we learn from it. And critical things that we've identified appear to include, first, a small development team, but with a much larger user community. And maybe that's evident to a lot of people on this call, but um, it was interesting to understand that there were really only a handful of developers for most of these ontologies, but a very large user community that would provide feedback to that smaller number of developers. Um, the teams that were doing the development had a very strong commitment to their user base and to continuous improvement. Um, and also... Those teams were very conscious of publishing their maintenance policies, making sure they published their URI naming conventions, how you could extend those URIs, that they would um, live you know, forever, as it were, um, that you can depend on them in any sense, um, and that they would provide useful documentation to go along with the ontologies themselves. And as many of you, I'm sure, have observed even some of these well-used ontologies get mixed reviews depending on the application, what metadata you need in your application, what your provenance requirements are, um, what your requirements for extending those ontologies are, and so forth. Um, so the metadata that is included for all of these things, along with any that we would publish, uh, is critical. Uh, slide five, please. What we've identified as good practices to make things reusable um, include these policies that are very clearly stated along with your ontology about how you intend to manage the ontology, maintaining your metadata, and providing sufficient provenance so that your community can trust that that ontology will be there when they need it, that they can depend on evolution, that you're not going to break um, relationships to prior versions and that sort of thing. The commitment of serving your user community is absolutely critical. And so finding a way to represent metadata that would link users to that community from the repository so they can see uh, where they would go with questions, where they would go to get new features added and that sort of thing we think is very important. Um, 
we're learning a lot from what people have done in the bioportal, bio what people have done with OMV. Um, there have been a couple of other repositories we've been following. Um, their results are critical for us to be able to understand what we need to do going forward. Um, this note that we're working on at the W3C is still an editor's draft, although hopefully in the next several weeks it will move to working draft. But it's available at the link you see there. Um, the critical, lightweight, simple things that we've learned are first, use URIs for naming your concepts. Publish not only the URIs, but your persistence policy. Who owns it? Who can edit it? How do you plan to maintain it? That sort of thing. And that's just with regard to the URI, not necessarily with regard to the ontology, and that's also important. Providing readable documentation is critical. Sharing your maintenance policies, how people can make changes, who is going to make them, what's your link to your user community so that they can be informed about those changes, comment on them, ask for new features, that sort of thing and identifying versions, um, all of those are critical. And one thing I thought was odd, but that, you know, we needed to actually say for some reason in this note, is that you should publish a formal schema in some recommended standard so that people can actually look at the RDF or OWL or uh, Common Logic um, in XCL or whatever the language you choose to publish in, actually publish the schema at the place where you say you're going to publish it. Um, it's surprising how many people actually don't do that. Uh, slide six, please. Another community that is um, well-known to the OMG may be less known to some folks in the Ontolog uh, community is the ISO step community, and that comes out of a lot of um, long history in the manufacturing uh, industry. Um, and there are some rules of thumb that the step community has identified for uh, designing for reuse, things that they think are critical, um, and that I've identified here because they may also be useful as we're thinking about uh, input into the ontology summit. Um, and so those I've identified here, just so you can look at them um, at your leisure. Uh, slide seven. So the other thing that I would like to highlight is in, in doing work for, for some government projects in particular, um, and working with Dr. Deborah McGinnis, uh, who's now at RPI, on inference web and provenance and trust applications. Um, what we've done is learned that there are very, very critical pieces of information that you could provide metadata for that will help you understand the answers that you get back from any reasoning that you do over these vocabularies and ontologies. Um, on her website at RPI, or if you do a search for inference web, you'll find um, the proof markup language, uh, which is not a set of OWL ontologies um, for justification, for trust, uh, and for provenance. And they might be of interest to this community in thinking about how you would differentiate between um, or debug, uh, from my perspective, the answers that you get back from multiple reasoners. So as it turns out, um, even different OWL reasoners sometimes give you different answers 
um, when you have a very large ontology that's fairly complicated. And so understanding, being able to use the proof traces and debugging facilities um, that depend on metadata to figure out where you have a problem or why you're getting different answers from different reasoners is important. And so I wanted to point to that here because the PML work that um, Deb and her team have done has been incredibly useful to us in thinking about how to interpret the results that you get back from from uh, different inference engines and may be useful to this community in thinking about requirements for metadata. Um, so other things that we've, um, Natasha actually highlighted and we also would echo, um, is that reuse clearly depends on being able to understand things like your licensing and IP limitations, um, any kinds of assess quality metrics um, that this group might um, develop coming out of the work that was done last year on the framework that Michael talked about. Um, Metadata that would help you understand how easy it would be to integrate a particular ontology with other vocabularies for your application. And then something I haven't heard very much about in this forum is um, metadata that might provide insight into um, things that would affect your choice of whether to use one ontology over another um, that might include things like performance or security or maintainability, those sort of um, elusive-ility requirements, I think are important. And if we can come up with any kind of metrics or um, notions of metadata that um, could be optional, perhaps, but that people would provide with their ontologies, I think would be very useful for helping differentiate when you're trying to choose one over another. Um, slide eight, please. So we've done some work on looking at the various standards that we might, or um, various ontologies or vocabularies we might use as a basis for our work at OMG. I've listed some of these here with the links so that um, if there are any that people aren't familiar with, you've at least got a, a link so that you can connect to them. OMV, you've already heard about. The BioPortal, obviously, you've heard about. But... Um, Perhaps some of the work on um, the proof markup language or some of the um, micro theory work may not be as familiar to this group. And so I um, include those links uh, in case those are useful. Um, slide nine, please. So some of the issues that we're grappling with in attempting to um, put some concrete ideas together for creating this repository at OMG and um, in particular, the metadata supporting it uh, would be how to assess um, the content that we receive from various OMG members or other people to put in the repository um, and the criteria for acceptance. Um, how do we keep it fresh? And how do we um, continually provide pointers in the metadata that would allow somebody to know that even if something hasn't changed for a while, that there's an active community using it? Um, how do we help people find what they're looking for? Um, Natasha alluded to some of this. I think that there's a lot of work to be done on metadata, experimenting with metadata that will help people find things. And I, and I really agree with her on the fact that, you know, it's possible that other users might be more helpful than authors after uh, some point in time. 
And then persistence. How do we organize the ontologies within the repository, and do we use an ontology for that? Um, and then, of course, strategies for versioning and um, ongoing support for those. So those are some of the things that we're looking at at OMG. Um, we are uh, very much looking forward to the summit and to working with everyone here to evolve our vision and to uh, hopefully solicit inputs to the RFI from people in this community. Um, and I think the slide 10 gives contact information. Oh, there's one more. So these are the things that we're doing. Um, and thinking about um, as we get closer to uh, creating such a repository. Um, and then my last slide, slide 11, has contact information for those of us who are working on this. So I think that's it for us. Thank you very much. Hello, this is Barry. I think it would be a good idea if Peter would summarize the, um, the rules for um, making one's voice heard, since I, I certainly have forgotten. Okay. Uh, first of all, uh, there are two modes uh, that you can it make your desire to be heard known. If you are on the chat session, uh, this would be a good time to press the hand sign, and that would sort of cue you up in our session co-chair uh, would call upon these people, I guess, in that order. The alternative, if you're not on the chat session, if you're only on the phone, uh, you could actually do a press a one one on your keypad. And if you do that, uh, it will show up on this screen as uh, you're having shown your hand and then, again, the session chair could call upon you. So let's move on to Arturo. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you yep. now, Arturo. Well, I have actually, I have actually posted uh, already four questions on the chat uh, board. So what do you want me to do? You want me to read the four of them? You choose or? the shortest one. What was that? Choose the shortest question since we, uh, we need to ration the available time. Okay, well, uh, one question uh, for Natasha Noy. She, she talked about the, the definition of validity, but there's not, a, there's not really a formal definition of it. So how can you check for it if you don't have a definition? And if you – it looks like they were avoiding that problem, and then they, the, the versioning was defined as just creating a new, brand-new um, ontology which compromises – Interoperability among versions of the of the of the various uh, versions. Thank you. Um, I don't think I talked. Did I? Where did I talk about validity? I don't. I don't. Uh, um, I don't think I talked about it. And I agree with you that. So so okay. Some validity can uh, validity. Uh, you're, I agree with you that it is a vague concept and. So some validity, for example, if it's, you know, ontology in LDL, uh, validity is you run a classifier and see if it's consistent. Is that the validity you were talking about? Or, uh, I mean, I, I, I agree with you that it, we, we don't have a very good definition of what that is. That's why it's, I don't think validity is an OMV or if I did talk about it, I, missed, I, I didn't mean to. 
So I, I, I agree with you that it's a very vague concept, and it also depends on the formalism very much. That's all I have to say. Good. Can I move on to Rex? Uh, sure. My question is for Peter or anybody else that wants to. Um, could you elaborate on the difference with examples, if you can, between prescriptive and descriptive ontologies? Did you mean Michael? No, actually, I meant Peter. Uh, so, so it was Michael who talked about that, if I remember correctly. Oh. Yeah, so I don't think I can answer that uh, question. So uh, Michael originally brought the distinction up, and I think he would be the best person to answer it. Thank you. Michael? So it's for Michael. I think Michael is not there, or maybe he's muted. Star three. Okay, sorry. Um, so this is Michael here. Uh, so I think that distinction uh, kind of first arose uh, out of a couple of examples. Um, say one, uh, if you looked at, say, uh, at least I brought this example up a bit earlier too. So if you look at, say, STEP as being a uh, an, ontolo you know, an ontology of sorts for, for manufacturing products, uh, right, at first that arose as kind of a descriptive uh, standard because it was describing uh, the various features uh, related to products from the perspective of the uh, end users. Um, now, for a prescriptive ontology, you are kind of, you know, forcing users then to uh, do things in that particularly correct way. And if I might step on, on Barry's toes there, I, I, I think that Barry initially was proposing some of uh, uh, the, the biological work as being a more prescriptive ontology. Is that a correct? Uh, uh, well, my, my my general argument is that um, we need to have prescriptions of various sorts in order to hold back the floodgates of uninformed or irrelevant or crazy uh, marginalia in ontologies and um, in biology. Th this is part of science. Science has all kinds of mechanisms to ensure that it's scientific experts who make contributions. I think that we should uh, strive to have similar mechanisms in scientific ontology development. Now, the, the open ontology repository that we are addressing here is not exclusively for science, and it may be that in other areas uh, we wouldn't need those kinds of mechanisms, but I think in science it's obvious that we do, and therefore in biology we do. Oh, and Rex, Rex, if I may, I, I saw a question you had on the on the chat session. Uh, I'm not on the chat session, but I just saw it. Uh, an example of a semi-structured ontology. Uh-huh. Uh, so uh, examples of that would be, say, the uh, the enterprise ontology uh, from University of Edinburgh, um, in the sense that uh, you know we provided some axioms at that time in KIF. Uh, which would now be common logic, I guess. Uh, but there was a substantial amount of the semantics that were in, in the English documentation. And so if you were to use the enterprise ontology, you would have to incorporate those uh, comments into your particular implementation. Uh, or another example would be, say, um, to some extent, so some of this is kind of relative, because, say, for example, OWLS, the OWL service ontology for web, semantic web services, provides some axioms in OWL, right? So it provides the basic categorizations of, say, the different kinds of 
of processes in a, in a web service. Uh, but again, a lot of the semantics for those different categories of, of processes are, are in English. And so if you wanted to uh, correctly implement OWLS, you would not be able to use just the OWL axioms. You would also have to incorporate the uh, English documentation, the informal side of things, in order to build a correct implementation of that ontology. So that was, that was kind of what the idea was for the, the semi-structured. Yeah, thank you. Um, that, that's, that's very helpful. There's an Anne's question follows up on that. You might want to read it. It's on the chat session, or would you like me to read it? Uh, Why don't you read it for those who are not on the chat? Okay. Uh, she says, my question to Michael regarding structure, I'm thinking in particular of the HLB, HL7B3 RIM, the reference information model is used as a theory of what there is, a, in parentheses, a semi-formal upper ontology to both describe and prescribe the kinds of things that can be said in a largest family of derivative standards. The RIM has internal structure, and the related set of standards has structure that can be expressed e.g. using step concepts. How would, should this kind of structure be handled in our dialogue, distinct from the quality of being, quote, structured that is present in Michael's slide 11? Hmm, that's a, that's a, a good question. I mean, one thing I, I, I wanted to, uh, to kind of avoid in, in any of those, that discussion that I, I made is none of those t uh, dimensions should be interpreted in any way as a uh, uh, some indication of of, uh, of a value judgment. Um, I mean, these uh, it's not that the more formal is the better. It's not that the more logical is the better. That's, that's not what we're after in, in any of those kinds of, of characteristics. Um, we are trying – essentially, uh, one approach was to look at the different pragmatic dimensions, uh, you know, such as uh, intended use and, uh, you know, the different kinds of, of applications, if there's any kind of automated reasoning, as kind of the, 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 the semantic uh, – values of the semantic dimensions would be kind of determined or influenced by those pragmatic dimensions. So – uh, again, formal is not necessarily better than semi-formal because the ontology is used for its particular application. And uh, in many cases, a semi-formal ontology will be uh, a better ontology to use for a particular problem. Um, now, that aside, um, the question does seem to combine a little bit uh, the, uh, the prescriptive versus descriptive uh, kind of of dimension, <clears throat> uh, I, I see the descriptive as what she's saying as a theory of what there is, um, and, and so I, I see some of that as being addressed in that in that way. Uh, so, uh, I mean, the notion, to some extent, you know, like the notion of structure, whether it's uh, uh, structured or semi-structured or, or unstructured, is again um, really meant to um, identify uh, what other kinds of uh, either software mechanisms or whatever have to be brought to bear in applications of that ontology. So is that actually also represented in, in an ontology or is this additional information that has to be captured? So in terms of the, of the uh, repository, the discussions we heard earlier from like Natasha and Peter would be, um, you know, documentation was one important kind of bit of a piece of metadata. And you can have free-flowing documentation, or you can have in some cases where this would come up. 
Um, maybe I can uh, butt in a little bit here. Um, I think that, that one of the issues that we have not addressed, as far as I know, in our discussions of metadata for the OOR is who might conceivably be going to um, police the um, process of ensuring that the metadata is recorded and recorded correctly. And I think this is an interesting issue, um, even though the OOR, as we conceive it, is uh, presumably an intellectual exercise. We're not actually going to build it in Gatorsburg at the end of April. We're going to discuss strategies and, and problems, but this is an interesting problem. And it connects to the topic that we're discussing now because if we have a rather loose and open set of constraints, then the policing costs will be very low or relatively low. Uh, if we let any kind of metadata be included, then we don't need to police it at all. On the other hand, if we have good metadata, for instance, having to do with the fact that the, uh, that the system meets all the syntactic correctness claims that the system makes on behalf of itself, then to police that will be expensive in manpower and um, uh, in, in uh, mechanisms to ensure that the process is done in a timely fashion and so forth. Uh, I think this is an interesting problem. Um, and I am, on the one hand, on the side of quite serious constraints, but on the other hand, I'm a realist. And I do not see how we're going to uh, bring about a situation where responsible people are going to be spending their time ensuring that serious constraints are imposed on a truly open repository. Anyone can respond to that? Natasha? Okay, I will. Um, so, so let me just uh, double check that. So, are you talking about the metadata itself, the, the metadata describing the ontologies, or about the ontology of ontologies? So the, the OOR is going to be a repository of ontologies, which includes metadata associated yeah. with ontology, and this panel, as I understand it, is about what that metadata should look like. And we've mm -hmm. heard various proposals which overlap considerably. Um, I am just raising now an issue which each of those proposals addresses in a different way, namely, how will we impose the requirement to have the metadata included in, in ontologies which are deposited in the repository? And how will we ensure that they are applied correctly? Um, so, okay. So, um, uh, thank you for clarification. Uh, so, 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 there is some, only, for example, has some metadata, some properties there that are required. So, you know, if there is any software for the repository, say the bar portal, essentially, if you're submitting the ontology, you cannot press the next button until you fill in, you know, the author and the URL or some and we can decide what that pertinent information is that is required. Um, there is, I don't think there's any way to find out that people are telling the truth. Uh, we just don't have that. I don't, I don't think there's any way to do that, except that then we have users. And I think the policing part, 
Uh, and I know, Barry, that's where we take different, there are different opinions, and you and I differ in opinion, and we'll just have to see how it works out. But in my opinion, uh, the users are the ones who will do the policing. You know, if the authors put in, if we have a field for, I don't know, quality of documentation, and the author says it's great, and then users come in and say, no, it's terrible, we'll just have both of those opinions, and whoever comes in and uh, browsers that will see who they trust yeah. more. Um, I, 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 I don't think there are any resources to do the policing, and quite frankly, I'm not even sure how you can always do that and ensure that the metadata is correct. Um, if it's someone told you don't know, coming from people you don't know, how do you find out that they're not lying? But I think that's what the, user, what the users are for. I think that's an interesting proposal. I don't want to keep talking. So does anyone else want to go on? Uh, we had just now uh, someone from the 650 area code who had his or her hand up, but I don't see it anymore. person from the 650 area code, uh, do you still want to ask a question or make a remark? Uh, hi, Peter. This is Marla here. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so uh, I had actually posed this question to Natasha, and uh, uh, and and she replied back. And I I still have a lingering question on the mappings uh, uh, on the in the bio portal. What sort of uh, expressivity is there for the mappings, and and how are they stored? And that was um, slide five. Oh. Okay, so I'll, I'll recap the question in the chat, which was Mal asked me what if mappings themselves are metadata, and yes, we think of them as metadata with all the same issues as which version of an ontology they apply to, how do we get community contributions, and so on. So we will, uh, on the internal list, we actually have a white paper that describes all of that. Uh, we'll probably be publishing it shortly. Uh, so the expressivity level right now is very primitive, and it's actually even more primitive in the user interface than it is in the, in the background. So in the user interface, if you go to the alpha alpha.bioontology.org, um, I think, it's the link on the first or the second of my slides, the alpha link. Uh, so the only th what, what you can do there is define a one-to-one -one mapping, in the user interface, you cannot actually specify their relationship, so we assume it's similarity mapping, and you can put comments in. That's, what, that's really the very simple model that we have right now. In the background, if you're actually submitting the mapping, we, we are storing uh, the type of relation, the mapping relationship that you have. And, of course, we're also storing who created the mapping and dates and that type of metadata. That go, that's in there as well, and that's presented in the UI. Um, and that's about it for now. We are, so the metadata on the map, so know that mappings are metadata on ontologies, but we're also talking about metadata on the mappings, like who created them, but also in which context, in which application context, by which tool. Because in Bioport, we're allowing you to upload bulk mappings, say that you created in some other tool outside of Bioportal, as well as create single one-to-one -one mappings um, uh, directly in the BioPortal user interface. So all of that is metadata, and it probably will end up being quite extensive. Uh, but we'll represent that as, you know, uh, probably as an extension to OMV. We will quite, haven't quite figured it out. Um, and it's all, you can then download it as a set of RDF if you want it. 
Does this make sense? Does that answer yeah. your question? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, but still the uh, repertoire for the uh, types of relationships um, in the mappings, uh, you know, the content, the semantic content is still emerging. Is that that's fair? That's correct. That's right. Okay. All right. Thanks. Uh, Peter, uh, this is Michael again. Um, are, is the chat session being uh, going to be archived after this uh, session? Yes. Uh, it, uh, it will be captured and pasted over to the session page. Like okay. So if, uh, for any, any questions that are, um, are posted on that chat session uh, that are just to me, um, if we don't cover in the next uh, 10 minutes or so, because we have a hard stop at 4, um, I'll make sure that uh, it gets raised in our in the mailing list. I'll respond to any any message to me in, in the mailing list if we don't have time today. We have four hands. So there is somebody called S who has uh, requested to speak. Whoever you are. So can we go on to time? Time? So this is anonymous one, I believe. Can you star three yourself? Now, while we're waiting, um, I, uh, I, I think it would be a good idea now to uh, remind people that there is a reservation process which you need to engage in, a registration process, if you want to attend the face-to-face -face meeting in Gaithersburg. There is a block of rooms which has been reserved at the Holiday Inn, uh, but you need to contact the hotel uh, very quickly if you want to take advantage of this, and it may already be too late, in fact. And the, you can find the details on the, uh, the Ontolog Forum Summit page. Uh, you also need to register at the uh, NIST website for Interoperability Week, at which the Ontology Summit forms a part, and you should do that quickly also because there are security issues which need to be addressed. And... Uh, Registration will be a big help in addressing those issues. And um, having said that, I will ask again whether Chaim is uh, is on the uh, call. No. So, is there anyone else who would like to uh, contribute? I think Arturo had several questions, and he only managed to. Uh, okay. So, do you want to go on to your next question? I think maybe Arturo is not there anymore. I just wanted to I just wanted to offer a simple view to the question that was posed by Dr. Smith. And my my view is as follows. If I take Could a look speak at up, the uh, Yes. Yes? Yes, yep. you speak up a little louder. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay, so I, I would say that I, I wanted to uh, give it a shot to a simple answer to the question that was posed by Dr. Smith. So if, if you take a look at OMV, uh, to me the semantics of the, of the model there 
it seems to be essentially an UML semantics or a, 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 uh, a relational uh, semantics. So a uh, question of how do you manage uh, new uh, metadata uh, boils down to managing new relationships. Um, so, so, so the question that I wanted to that I wanted to address is that many many times when when uh, when people propose models for ontologies, the semantics behind the model is not really discussed. So, if you don't have a clear definition of what the semantic of the model that supports the ontology is, how can you talk about you know implementation of properties or or things like that? Yeah, um, I can yeah. answer this. Yes, please. Uh, yes. So what what I presented uh, in my slides was a UML like view uh, on the ontology. Yeah. Uh, but I also mentioned that uh, the the ontology itself is uh, formalized in OLDL, yeah. So in the description logic, and it is uh, fairly richly uh, axiomatized. Yeah. And there's also a fair amount of reasoning uh, that you can. Uh, do based on this model. Uh, I didn't go into these details, but things that you can do is, for example, uh, automatically classify an ontology with respect to its expressiveness, or what you could also do is um, find out what kind of reasoner uh, you would need in order to be able to deal uh, with this ontology. And you can think of other reasoning tasks that you can uh, express uh, using only. I will just point out, in, in order to uh, close a thread in what I was saying earlier, that the NEON project has a strategy to do the policing, as does the BioPortal. Uh, both of these are funded projects, and the, the funding is going to be um, uh, used in part in order to ensure that the quality of the ontologies in those two repositories is at least such as to meet certain minimal kinds of requirements as concerns uh, the, uh, the the presence of metadata. Uh, the, the the issue I'm sorry to to pester about this, but it, it's something that I'm is very close to my heart. The issue for the open ontology repository is not so easy because the open ontology repository is going to be a repository to which. I assume anybody can contribute an ontology, and not just those people who are part of a given funded project. Yeah, maybe uh, I can add to that. Um, the neon technology that we are developing is uh, certainly not only intended to be used within the neon project. So we are developing technology that is uh, intended to be used in a, in a wider community. And uh, if you look, for example, at the Watson system, which is uh, one of the outcomes uh, of the NEON project, I mean, this is a system that is uh, as open as you can uh, imagine. Yeah? So it uh, really crawls all the semantic uh, data that it uh, can find out there in the web. Um, I mean, uh, there's no uh, policy involved there uh, at this point. Uh, but what I'm trying to say is that uh, the, the work that we're doing is not only limited uh, to, to, to being used within the project. Good. So is there anyone else who wants to have the final word?
I believe Kaim Sins have uh, since typed out his remark. Shall I read it? Yes, please. So it says, uh, just a short remark. Uh, we need to differentiate between the topic ontology of ontologies and metadata issues related to the field of ontology study. Um, yes. So I, I, Michael will, will okay. confirm that I predicted that this question would arise. Okay, it's, um, it's a, um, a, a purely uh, conventional decision of the Ontolog Forum organization content team that the phrase ontology of ontology should be used primarily to signify what kind of metadata should be enclosed or included with ontologies which are to be part, part of the ontology repository. I believe that that question is closely connected with the more general question of ontology of ontologies, since, of course, in order to know whether an ontology should be part of the ontology repository, you need to know whether it is an ontology rather than some other artifact. And that means that you need to think very hard about what an ontology is, and then you're doing the ontology of ontologies. Yeah, uh, this is Michael. Uh, I would agree with that. And... uh I would just kind of also say that I think I look at the ontology metadata as being the concrete steps towards this other notion of ontology of ontologies, which I view as, again, very ambitious and perhaps not quite fully achievable, whereas I see uh, specification of ontology metadata as something which we can do. Uh, and we can, we can do incrementally and empirically and try different strategies. Exactly. That sounds like a good note to end on. So, unless there is a strong objection, uh, I think I'm going to declare this meeting a success. And, uh, Peter, do you want to have the final word? No, you go ahead. Okay, then. Thank you to Peter for his uh, incomparable uh, services in making these things possible. And thank you to all the participants and speakers for an interesting and, uh, I think, uh, uh, contentful panel. And I Thank declare you. the meeting closed. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.